Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to Lost in Science for another week. We have a big half an hour of science ready to go for you. My name is Claire and this week we are talking all things S, the letter S that is. Well, it's cinema Mm -hmm. and salt. Yep. And simians. So this show was brought to you by the letter S. It is brought to you by the letter S. S That's right. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to be talking to Lisa Bailey from the Australia Science Channel about Cinema, the International Science Film Festival, that you can check out over the next week or so. There's a documentary about pangolins. Have you guys? I love pangolins. I love pangolins too. Pangolins are the, the earliest carnivore. Species. They're like something. they're they're, they're like, halfway between a cat and a dog or something. Oh, really? But they're yeah. covered in scales. Yeah, and they pre- predate both cats and dogs. All oh, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Chris, what do you have in store for us today? Well, I am a being a copycat. I am. Oh yeah, you're you've um, taken inspiration from me, haven't you? I have taken mm. from inspiration from a salty, salty story from last week. Yeah. Um, about whether salt makes you thirsty. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna These tackle. These pretzels are making me thirsty. <laughs> just thinking the about story the story. Just thinking me about thirsty. the pretzels are making me thirsty. But the other thing about salt is we all know. Well, we all heard that it's that can raise your blood pressure and it's bad for you. But there are people who vehemently disagree with that and kind of you know a bit of a controversy. So. Uh, yeah, I'm going to try and get to the bottom of that and see if we can answer that question, whether get salt to the is bottom, good or bad for you. Get to the bottom of the salt shaker, so That's to speak. right, yeah, yeah. And Stu? Well, I'm talking simian science this week. Um, I'm looking at some some experiments that have been happening recently into how do we recognise faces and how do monkeys recognise faces. And um, they've basically narrowed it down to a very simple, relatively simple equation and there's very few parameters that you need to recognise a face out of all of the possible infinite permutations of a face and what it can look like. Yeah, but some interesting practical upshots from that by uh, looking at how monkeys recognise faces and um, what that could possibly mean for the future of facial recognition. So that's Cinema, Salt and Simeon. Stay with us. It's that time of year where lovers of science and film come together for Cinema International Science Film Festival, spelt S-C-I-N-E-M-A. And once again, we have Program Manager Lisa Bailey from Australia's Science Channel with us to talk more about what to expect from cinema around Australia. Welcome to Lost in Science, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Cinema is happening again. And for those who might have missed it last year, can you tell us um, what it's all about? Yes, certainly. So Cinema is certainly Australia's biggest science film festival (laughs) and one of the, we think it's one of the biggest ones in the world. Um, We had over 1,200 films submitted to us this year from all over the world. So over 90 different countries um, submitted films for Cinema this year. And from that, we've 
selected the best films to bring to people all around Australia this June for our cinema film screenings in Palace Cinemas. Fantastic. So when's it happening? And you said it's happening all around Australia, so... Yes, yeah. so mostly everywhere. So uh, from, <laughs> it starts this week in Adelaide on Wednesday, the 7th of June, and then we go Brisbane on Thursday, 8th of June, the following week in Sydney, Melbourne and Canberra on the Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and finishing up in Perth on the Monday, the 19th of June. So it'll be a eight or nine day process of of cinema yeah. film festival. Yep, we're having them all around the country over a couple of weeks. So last year we tried to do them all on the same day, which worked and was fine. Yeah. We thought we just, we're gonna we're gonna make it a little bit easier for ourselves this year and, <laughs> and spread it out over a couple of weeks, and it and it just kind of allows people the time to kind of get involved and see what's happening in other cities as well so hopefully if you follow along on we've got a hashtag cinema 2017 if you follow along on that you'll see all of the news happening from the events around the country is the program the same around the country Yes, the program is the same around the country. So we've got the winning films. So we have several different categories that we award films in. So things like, you know, we have a best film, best short film, best director, best documentary. And then we have a couple of special awards for, you know, films that have a really good scientific merit or a very um, good technical merit. And this year we also gave a special jury award out to particularly sweet and endearing film by um, a teenager from the UK who made a film about... IVF. She's an IVF baby and oh, wow. she made a film about the process using all the materials she could find in her kitchen. Um, <laughs> but it's a really great, it's actually a really great little short film that's very, you know, it's a great way to describe what happens in IVF. But yeah, you'll never look at a pawpaw the same way again after you've seen this movie. <laughs> I am so curious. A pawpaw. <laughs> um, I won't spoil it, but uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We've got an IVF film. and What else can people expect to see? Uh, yeah, so we had films from all over the world, as I said, submitted. And this year, actually, one of the things that was really nice and that the jury commented on when we um, did the final film selection is that we've got some films and science stories from all over the world and particularly from parts of the world that you don't often hear much about in terms of science or um, stories about science. So uh, the winning film is uh, called Ausia, although I might be pronouncing that incorrectly, but it's from Iran and it's follows the story of an aqueduct. That, so this ancient aqueduct that's been around for 2,500 years and basically it's this story of how the aqueduct has fallen into disrepair due to the kind of negligence and bureaucracy around it and, mm. sort of, you know, the couple of people left that are fighting for this aqueduct survival. Award for Scientific Merit went to the uh, film from Pakistan about pangolins. So I don't know I if love you're aware pangolins. Of what a pangolin is. They are yeah. the most amazing creatures. They are the most amazing creatures. Yeah. And even in, you know... At Australia Science Channel, we've got a lot of people who, you know, love science, are very passionate about science. We watch a lot of science media and we still have people in our team who had never seen a pangolin before. So, Just to um, give I a description still- of, a, of a pangolin. So a pangolin is sort of like a, an anteater. It's sort of like, you know, maybe a bit bigger than a cat-sized yeah. mammal, but it's covered. It's got, you know, that anteater snout yeah. that does eat insects. But it's covered in scales. So, yeah, um, really quite big into, scales, aren't they? Yeah, quite big scales. And so yep. it, looks, it looks quite unusual when it, when it moves around and it curls up into a little ball to protect itself from predators. But, yeah, it's really interesting actually looking at how this animal has been perceived culturally, you know, in Pakistan where it's, where it, 
it lives and sort of the transformation of it to being recognised as a, as a valuable species that needs protection from poachers and, and that kind of thing. That's excellent that Sinem is able to showcase those sorts of films and those sorts of stories that might not necessarily get airplay anywhere else in Australia. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that uh, the jury was really pleased to be able to do this year. So there's a couple of other films. So there's a um, the best short film is a really lovely short film about time travel with a bit of a twist. So it's um, you know it's a it's a short narrative film. It's not a science factual piece, but it's a lovely, charming you know examination of what might happen when two little boys encounter a wormhole. And, and oh. it's a Spanish film, um, but it's. <laughs> Absolutely gorgeous. It stars the filmmaker's two young sons. And, uh, yeah, it's really it's really charming and lovely. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. Full of imagination. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's one of the things that's really interesting about, about going through this process. So, you know, these are the, the eight films that we narrowed down as award winners from, you know, the literally over a thousand that we had submitted. And just the breadth of topics that people cover um, we're not just about you know documentary filmmaking so there are you know documentary style films in the program but you know we we look at animations short you know people that are taking a an, a different approach to telling science stories or doing you know science fiction or um, fictional narrative stories we're interested in all of those things that touch on science so there's going to be something in the program that's going to appeal to everyone I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was our plan. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, hopefully people will like that. Uh, if, if you come along and see the screening, you do get to see all eight of the prize-winning films. So most of them are short films, so that fits into a two-hour program. And so, yeah, they're the eight winning films for Cinema 2017. Um, we do have, after the film screening in June, um, in National Science Week, we run our community screening program and anyone around Australia is welcome to register to host their own Cinema screening as part of that. So, yeah, definitely encourage people to go and just check out our Cinema website. You can see all the program for the June screenings and get links through to tickets there. And if you're interested in the community screenings, you can register for free there as well. That sounds like a fantastic way for communities to celebrate National Science Week, you know, without having to do much organisation, just jump on your website yeah. and already you've got a film festival and something to do. And Well, that's what we that's what we hope to achieve with that. You know, it makes it really easy for organisations that might not have a lot of time or resources to spend in National Science Week. So we have a lot of places like libraries and places like that that want to do something for Science Week but they're not quite sure. It's really easy for them to put on a cinema screening um, and, and do something for their community that way. Or other people do cinema screenings as part of other Science Week events that they're doing, festivals. Schools all around the country will show a cinema playlist during Science Week. So, yeah, there's all sorts of opportunities for people to be able to do that. If people want to know more, should they jump onto cinema.australiascience.tv? They should, yeah. Is if that... you go there, you'll find out everything about it. Fantastic. Thanks again, Lisa, from the Australia Science Channel. And I'm really looking forward to the June program. I think my, my um, heart's going to lie with the, with the pangolin story, I'm afraid. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I reckon you'll like test tube babes as well. Awesome. Fantastic. <laughs> thanks again, Lisa. Okay, thanks, Claire. Yes, you are listening to Lost in Science. And if you are a regular listener of Lost in Science, you remember last week's story where Claire told us about a new study showing that salt maybe doesn't actually make you thirsty. Yeah, there's been some interesting research that has shown in both rats and in astronauts that more salt in the diet actually decreases the amount of 
um, water that you consume. Yeah. But not necessarily the amount of water that you expel in urine. So, yeah. Mm, just- quite, a, quite a controversial finding. As you can imagine, <laughs> there was a fair bit of discussion in the studio afterwards. Yeah, there was a fair bit of discussion. Yeah. Well, one of the things, I and mean, we do believe Claire, of course, in everything she says. But one of the things Look, we you d- don't need to believe me. You can go and read those papers. This isn't about belief. No, no, it's not. It's about science. And one of the things we discussed regarding that was the question, another question, which is a controversial thing, about whether salt is good or bad for you, particularly in relation to blood pressure and how there is conflicting information out there. There is conflicting information and a lot of emotion. Yeah, yeah. Isn't there? There is, there is. We, We kind of put in the too hard basket, I feel. Yeah, well, you've been thinking about doing a story on this for a long time. Yeah, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm rifling through the two hard basket. <laughs> I am going to, I am going to step forward. I'm going to take part in stepping into the salt wars. And the salt wars. They call it people. Some people call it the salt wars because, as you said, it's passion. There's a lot of thing about it. There's, some people call it the salt wars. To me, this story it's about the way that health information is presented and understood by people. Uh, now we often talk here about science communication and the way science is presented in the media and this sort of stuff. I think health information is a particular, got its own particular problems. I mean, certainly it's a subset of your science communication, but it's also, obviously it's particularly important, but also people think about it in particular ways. And one of the ways that, that people approach health information is oversimplify it and treat it as black and white. So they'll say either salt is good for you and eat as much as you want, or they say salt is bad for you, you shouldn't have any. And that's not the way that science generally works. It's complicated. So, it, it, yeah, it is very complicated. And that, but that, that complication, that difference, that, that range that you're talking about gives you some, some sort of mixed results, which can be hard to interpret or yeah. can be like easy to interpret whichever direction you want to interpret them. You know? Sure, right. So when, like when there are shades of grey, you can easily argue whether it's closer to white or closer to black. How is this complicated? Well, you'll, you'll often hear people give a simple explanation for how salt affects your blood pressure through osmosis in the kidneys. I don't know if you've heard about this. I'm not going to go into that in too much detail because the real situation seems is far, far more complicated than that, involving, you know, osmoreceptors and hypothalamus and all kinds of different kind of hormones and enzymes and things that are passed back and forward. So it's, it's You're actually, not going to go into that, though? I'm not going to go into it because, okay. because it is, like I said, it is complicated and mm-hmm. we want to do proper medical science, which is really about... How does it work in the real world? How does it actually affect your health? Now, so yeah, so what happens with, with salt and blood pressure? I think, Claire, you mentioned that when you were reading it, you saw some mention that there was a J-shaped response. Yeah, I did mention that. Yeah, so what does that mean? Well, if you think about a J on a graph, yeah. you've got like a high end at closest to the Y-axis mm-hmm. and a high end um, furthest away from the Y-axis. So that means, you know, if, if you've got salt along the X-axis, yep. then too little salt is no good for you and too much salt can also be yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's exactly like that. Uh, I tracked down the, there was a paper published in 2015 that talked about this particular J curve, uh, and they suggested the optimum level for salt, the the sweet spot, if you will, or maybe salty salty spot, mm. is between three and five grams of salt per day to consume. So you know, much more than that, or much less than that, and you'll start to see bad health effects, particular case of looking at the risk of cardiovascular disease like heart attack and stroke. Yeah, but anyway, so three to five grams per day of salt is what trying to say is kind of the sweet spot, the salty sweet spot. And this is why you get these conflicting things, you know, too little is bad, too much is, is bad. Well, okay, so the World Health Organization recommends that you have less than five grams of salt per day, right? The Based on 
their based on yeah. the study the science that they've observed. Yeah. The average Australian consumption is about nine grams per day. So when we're talking about this J curve, basically the recommendations are centered basically putting you in that salty sweet spot, whereas our actual consumption is well into the danger zone. So essentially the we're not saying the recommendations are wrong and we're not saying people don't need to reduce because if you look at the actual figures, people actually are having too much. You can argue about whether too little is, is a bad thing or not, but we're actually eating way too much. So kind of becomes academic at the low end to that extent. But yeah, so that's just looking at one particular study though, and it is bad with medical science to just look at one particular study because they will vary. So we go to the, the, um, the best source of consensus information consensus on medical, information. which is the Cochrane Library. Are you familiar with the Cochrane Library? No, tell me about the Cochrane Library. The Cochrane Library, well, the Cochrane Collaboration is this group of, of researchers who essentially they do systematic reviews where they get all the studies that have been done on a particular topic and they combine them together, analyze them, and you know, rate them for their quality, lack of you know, whether they have bias or not, and they combine them to try and get what the, the actual end result is. Their papers can be found at cochranelibrary.com. Great. Um, Free. Free, yes. Um, not in every country, but in Australia, it is free to access the full, um, the full text. Uh, now, there was a review in 2014 that combined 34 trials with over 3,000 participants. And they found that, uh, well, if you have normal blood pressure, then going on a low-salt diet will reduce your systolic blood pressure by about 2.4 millimillimeters of mercury, which is how it's <laughs> measured. For people with high blood pressure, it will reduce, though, about 5.4. Uh, millimetres of mercury, which doesn't sound like a lot necessarily, I suppose. High blood pressure is normally over 140 over 100, I think, is the um, is high blood pressure. But, you know, if you apply this to a population level, that's a lot of people you bring down their, their blood pressure. So that's a fairly big effect. So and that's that's a consensus case out of all those studies that have been done. And, yeah, so it is a big effect if people have high blood pressure. According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, about 23% of Australians have high blood pressure. So from that point of view, you'd say it's it's worth worrying about, I guess. Yeah, look, as I was saying, I think the whole thing has been blown out of proportion, the controversy. Uh, if you look at the actual science, it is fairly straightforward. People just choose to interpret it different ways. You just get these passionate views on both sides, which then denigrates into exaggerated positions, conspiracy theories, that sort of thing. You know, conspiracy theories like, um, well, this is... I don't want to buy into these things, but saying that, you know, processed food manufacturers then exploit the controversy to avoid reducing their salt in their foods, you know. But again, um, I'm not saying they are actually trying to poison us with salt um, because I don't buy into conspiracy theories, but that sounds quite reasonable. They just want people to buy their products because salty things taste good. They do. But yeah, in terms of what this means for an individual, though, like if you have... Certainly, if you look at this, if you have a, like a, if you eat a low salt diet already and you have normal blood pressure, then you know you could say, well, you don't need to cut your salt, perhaps. But if you have high blood pressure and eat a lot of salt, which you know seems like is most Australians have eat a lot of salt, then maybe think about doing that because it is one thing that you can do to reduce your risk of cardiovascular disease. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to A Lost in Science. So do you guys reckon you would be able to tell two monkey faces apart? Yeah, I do. Chris? I think I'd struggle. I had trouble telling Dr. Zayas and the other <laughs> ones apart on and that And they were movie. even different species. And they yeah, were yeah. rubber masks. You yeah. are face blind to monkey faces. Monkey face though. blind. Yeah, and look, I reckon, I reckon most people would say they pretty much all look the same. In a study from 2005 at the University of Sheffield, uh, they showed that human babies under six months old 
could recognise individual monkeys quite easily. How do you ask a baby that knows which monkey? They they do well. They do, this, they, do this, they do similar tests with animals as well. It's how long they spend looking at the face. So if it's a face they've seen before, they spend less time looking at it because they go, oh, "I know who that is." If it's a new oh. face, they spend a lot longer looking at all the details of the face. So that's how they know that they're recognising new faces as opposed to faces they've already seen. So we're talking about babies under six months old, uh, and they tell monkeys apart from each other and other species. But after six months, they attuned <laughs> themselves to human faces, mm. and they forgot about the other species, yeah. and they stopped being able to tell them apart. So little babies are really good at telling other animal faces apart, individual animals. But look... Telling faces apart is very important for people, obviously, and for monkeys and apes as well, who often live in, you know, societal arrangements Uh of of groups of monkeys who need to tell which monkey's which, obviously. And in other apes and monkeys can tell each other apart. In chimpanzees, they can tell each other apart by looking at their bottoms. So they've figured out that that, that chimpanzees can tell each other apart just from the back end as well as seeing each other's face. From both? As well as? As well as, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. So front or back, they'll go, oh, yeah, that's... that's." There goes Roger. Yeah, that's right. As important as it is, we didn't really ever know how people or monkeys or apes or anyone actually can tell faces apart. it's, It's pretty mysterious stuff. Well... It was a mystery. The exact activity in the brain that monkeys and humans show when looking at faces has been pinpointed to specific regions of the brain for some considerable time. Uh, And the same parts of the brain light up when we or our cousins look at human faces or other faces. And pretty much only when we look at faces. So there's parts of the brain that light up when we look at faces and don't light up any other time. So they're specifically there to figure out what face is present in front of us when we look at them. Uh, This information has been used to figure out exactly what these particular cells are doing when we look at a face, and new research has shown that those cells are measuring parameters of the face. So researchers at the California Institute of Technology have discovered that only 50 measurements of any face can set it apart from the almost infinite variations a face could have. So what kind of measurements are we talking about here? That was my next question. Talking about things like how far apart your eyes are or how far apart the eyes on the face are, how far up or down the face the nose appears, how big the nostrils are, how big the mouth is, where the mouth is in relation. So there's 50 parameters that they've identified and they can go, okay, that's each one of these things, 50, you know, points on a checklist that your brain goes, all right, that's an individual face. And then another one with one slightly different parameter That'll be a different face. And you think about it, 50 variables is a yeah. huge number. and that, that is a large number. Yeah, you, you'll get to almost, uh, well, practically infinite variations with 50 separate parameters to, to shuffle around. You would be getting a pretty clear picture of a face, though, if you had 50 separate pieces of information that you were writing down about it. That's, that's exactly right. That's how we recognise each other. So our brains put together a composite image of all of these parameters and we go, oh, that's that individual person. Once we have seen a face, we remember it. So we see faces um, all the time. And if we see faces a lot, we might call those faces that we see a lot famous faces, for example. Uh, And we remember very specifically faces that we see a lot. In fact, there are specific cells that remember certain faces. 
So they've actually wow uh, when, famous face cells. Famous face cells. When when the memories are stored in the hippocampus, which is not the same area where the recognition cells are, they're in different yep. parts of the brain. They trigger specific face recognition patterns when we see the face again. So scientists have actually identified a specific patch of brain cells that coded for Jennifer Aniston's face. <laughs> so that when someone saw Jennifer Aniston's face, this part of their brain would light up every time they saw her face. So and not when, she, not when they saw other people's faces. So, do we so evolve- the rest of friends had a different... The rest of the friends a had different a different group of cells. Group of cells. Yeah. So we evolved specific cells to see, identify Jennifer Aniston is what you're saying. <laughs> Well, probably not. Which came first, Jennifer Aniston or the cells? Exactly. (laughs) But any face that we see frequently, there will be a corresponding group of cells that remembers that face specifically. But Jennifer Aniston was just the example they used because a lot of people had seen her a lot. So they were able to to look at their brain and and figure out uh, the Jennifer Aniston cells. And it's obviously not the same spot in everyone's brain. It's not like it was sitting there waiting till you saw Jennifer Aniston. Wow. No, just... one, no one told me life was going to be this way. <laughs> there's specific cells that, that light up when you see any face, and then there's specific cells that light up when you see a face that you've seen before that you Mostly remember. Mostly Jennifer Aniston's face. Especially Jennifer Aniston's <laughs> face. Now, here is the science fiction-y sounding part of this story. These scientists inserted probes into the face recognition cells in the brains of monkeys. And they were able to reconstruct facsimile images of faces that the monkeys were shown. So by recording what the face recognition cells in the monkeys' brains were doing when they looked at a particular face, they were able to reconstruct the face that the monkey was looking at, like a police identikit using a computer. Was it similar to what the face they, they are very, very similar. They're not just like blurry mm. face-like blobs. They're actually very clear human faces and they match the images that the monkeys were shown very, very closely. So there's, there's there slight some, details. How, how do we know what the monkey was actually seeing? Because I mean, they know what they showed the monkey. Yeah, then they're the ones that showed the monkey. They, they showed <laughs> the monkey this particular face and measured its brain activity at yeah. the time they're showing it the face. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then they used that information they got from the brain measuring yep. to reconstruct an image based on the parameters that they'd already established were there for identifying faces. Is there somewhere that we can go to look at some of these reconstructions? The images are online and the comparisons, that, so they have side by side the predicted image, which is what they said, the one they came up with from their computer, versus the image that the monkey was actually shown. And the people who were putting together the identical images based on the monkey brain measurements had not seen the pictures. So it was this kind of a double blind. This is very sci-fi. This is, is a bit It Terminator. is really, really sci-fi. So, you know, this, this kind of information or this kind of, you know, ability to measure, you know, instant brain activity and make faces out of what someone has already seen, if you combine that with, you know, that your memory can trigger the image of someone's face in your mind and you could measure that directly, you may be able to get a picture of someone's face out of someone's mind. Oh, my goodness. So that's well. pretty pretty amazing. But also there's things like, you know, face recognition software and artificial intelligence stuff. We'll find it very useful for programming that sort of ability. So those parameters that we use to identify faces will help computers be able to identify faces better because we've figured out that these 50 parameters actually can pretty much describe any face. 
that's all we have time for on another edition of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is recorded in the 3CR studios and broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can email us at lostinsight@gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook or just tune in next week when we will once again get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.